He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, July 22, 2023. We kick it off again with our troubadour, Dave Gunders. He is exuberant. We don't talk about it on the air, but he just got a new puppy, the cutest little girly. Her name is Layla, and I did not bring it up because it would have dominated everything else, but I bribed him over here with talk of scotch whiskey, chocolate ice cream, and then I made him watch a Jason Aldean video. Try that in a small town, which is perfect because we get to talk this week with Bradley Onishi, a former evangelical cleric who is now a scholar on religion, who's written a book called Preparing for War. He's got his own podcast. It's tremendous. Straight white American Jesus. How's that for a name? He comes up after Dave Gunders, who brings us his song, Heart of Understanding, and a great discussion of this week's events, including Judge Eileen Cannon setting an aspirational trial date. Yeah, right, that's going to happen. But Jack Smith, still hard at work. Donald Trump indicted again. The world is good because talented, smart people exist, but... What about Jason Aldean? With that, try that in a small town. If you watch the video, it's been banned by some, but that makes it just more popular. 10 million hits on YouTube, but heck, Dave Gunders and I discuss it, and you can make your own conclusions. Maybe we are all overreacting. Bradley Onishi and his book, Preparing for War, has got me thinking about my own life, my own encounters with people who I thought operated from a point of sincerity and more and more, I realize it's about keeping power. And that's what racism can be about, keeping privilege, keeping power. Let's make it a Christian America. Let's bring prayer back in school, of course, Christian prayer. And let's do this, let's do that to separate ourselves because These white Christians, maybe they don't want to compete with others. I do. Of course, I'm not a white Christian. Part of the way I try to compete in the battle of ideas is this beautiful podcast. With my good friend Dave Gunders, his song, Heart of Understanding, comes up along with my discussion of where he got it from and what we do going forward. Bradley Onishi is fantastic. I learned a lot. I lived through the history, but now it's in a better context because there are many things I just have not thought about, like how did Jesus become Nordic and white and American? Was that a manipulation and toward what end? And will this United States end because of it, because of religion? Are you kidding me? I hope not. Bradley Onishi is standing up. I'm standing up, too. We start with a beautiful song, Heart of Understanding. Let's make a music video out of this Dave Gunders special. 
Then you will hear from Bradley Onishi. We really appreciate every week. If you would tell a friend, subscribe. Five stars on Apple would be fantastic. Here is Troubadour Dave Gunders after the first break with Hard of Understanding. And a great discussion of current events. Thanks for listening. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. What did you say? I was complimenting your scotch. What about my ice cream? This is the place I'm coming every Friday. Chocolate ice cream, old scotch whiskey, and I played for you a music video. Try that in a small town by Jason Aldean. What'd you think? Um, You know, I mean, I, I'm not really sold on those kinds of songs too much. They're, I guess it's kind of a little bit formulaic for me. Maybe there was more heart in it that when he wrote it, but it... Uh, Obviously, it appeals to, um, you know, it appeals to the rural segment of our society. I think it's definitely an appeal to the right, um, just from the video watching how there was, you know, rioting in the cities and this and that. Try that in a small town. You'll never get away with it. We take care of our own. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think, I think it's an anthem. It's a, maybe it's a MAGA anthem, although it's reasonable in terms of what it actually says. I thought it was a good song, music-wise, and lyrics I could understand. I don't approve of them. It disturbed me greatly, the music video, but I've got the perfect antidote. You ready? Which one? You. We're going to make a music video out of your song this week, Heart of Understanding. I think we can build off of what this guy did. He has 10 million hits. We will get 20 million. Don't you think your song this week, Heart of Understanding, is perfect for this kind of imagery and a counter message? 
Right. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's rather, um, it's, it's, um, a little bit black and white in terms of, you know, the, the evil in our society versus the good, right? It's, that's why I say it's a little formulaic, but, um, I don't want to compare. I don't want to compare. I mean, he's the guy that's a successful musician. No, but honestly, I think there are similar styles of singing and guitar playing. I mean, he's more country than you, but you noticed there was some rock there. Yeah. And he kind of assumed the wise narrator approach, like, uh, hey, I know what I'm doing. And your Heart of Understanding song, I would say is a better song and better singing, too. I don't know why you're an undiscovered genius. I mean, you're on every medium, Amazon, Spotify, YouTube. But this is really, isn't this one of your all-time best? Oh, uh, no. That's, I don't know, Craig. No, I've never thought of it as my all-time I mean, what best, inspired this song, Hard of it was a Trump. Well, it was, a, tr- it was a, a Trump and his cronies that, that inspired it, you know. Gosh, remember when I went to Broadway and saw a parade about the yes. stringing up of Leo Frank? It was a small town kind of experience, although that was Mary. Right. No, yeah. Well, Fulton that's County, yeah. Georgia, that points right. to the hypocrisy of this song. It's like what, what crime doesn't happen in small towns? Evil doing doesn't happen in small towns? No, it's a you know on on one level it's just a it's just a country country anthem, and on another on another I just fear it's a call to arms for the MAGA you know troop. Oh my gosh, this book I read for today's show and my guest, Bradley Onishi, he was amazing. Troubadour, you have to listen to this show because he makes Heart of Understanding come to life. He was a kid growing up in Orange County. He got invited to some events by some Bible study people. They got him into the evangelical church. He bought it, hook, line, and he sunk in, married in the church, became a preacher, and he was in the belly of the beast. Then he got sent to Oxford, thank goodness, got a little more educated and saw some manipulation from the perspective of an outsider because his dad was Japanese-American and he was welcome just like you and I as Jewish-Americans. Boy, would they like to see us come over to their church. But uh, he didn't feel all that welcome. And he thinks America's got a big race problem And I saw it in that Jason Aldean video, and it's in a small town, and he calls it Christian nationalism, and he knows a lot more about Christianity than I do, but it's concerning. It's that John Wayne macho bullshit. Right, right. It it appeals to uh, the more basic uh, passions which is which is you know which stirs people up and it's not, i don't i just don't think it's helpful for our society to go that to the that place now it's easy it's an easy kind of uh um you know song to rally the troops but i don't think it's it's nuanced but your song isn't that hopeful it's hard of understanding we've put up walls we can't hear each other and i think when you have that beautiful line in here about the proud getting prouder you were talking about the proud boys were you I was probably not. Oh, <laughs> I was okay. probably, no, I was not. In a, a, although it, it alludes to them, sure. Yeah. Holy cow, the times we're going through. But instead of just bad news, how about my man, Jack Smith? He's not going to stop. Even though Eileen Cannon is going to try to stop the classified documents case. I wrote about that in the Colorado Sun. She set up for mid-May. Right. Good luck. First, I don't think that'll happen. No, that's just it. Uh, she took middle the middle ground. 
No, not yeah. even that. She took the far ground, and it's just uh, an aspiration. Any defense attorney can get a continuance. You know how? Call Craig Silverman. You no, know, you could say my garage door got stuck. That happened to me last week. But thankfully, I didn't have court. Or you can come down with a case of, I don't know, encephalitis. Trump would probably infect you deliberately if you were the lawyer. There are a million ways to get out of a first trial setting, generally speaking. But Eileen Cannon wants this trial like a hole in the head. She's a MAGA person. She got appointed by Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm sure she wants to be part of the trial. And then what if he's convicted? I want to sentence you, sir. You know, it's just not going to happen. The best way she can make sure that doesn't happen is if she's totally MAGA crazy, she could dismiss the case, but that would get reversed. But her rulings on a continuance, a first continuance, that's appellate proof. So there's nothing that can be done to make that case go to trial before uh, the election. And in fairness to her, and I don't really feel like being all that fair to a MAGA person, but it's complicated. She's a rookie judge, classified documents. You have to have all these hearings about what you can show to the jury, what you can't. It takes time and manpower. And Jack Smith is bringing the big bonanza in D.C., Hopefully get a rocket docket. Hopefully get an objective judge. I'll take a Bush appointee or even a conscientious Trump. No, I don't know how that could happen. The Trump would appoint. Yeah, no, I could. I've interviewed, in fact, in Denver, there's a Trump appointed guy. But so you know Craig, what I mean? When, um, when, when Trump, I say when, when Trump's indicted yes. right, for his role in the January 6th insurrection riot. Yes. Um, don't you think that the January 6th commission has already done all of the footwork, all of the legwork well, sure. there. But that's right? just like the Denver Police Department did all the work before I got the case. Now you got to prove it in court. One at a time, you got to start over. He gets a presumption of innocence, but with the charges that are going to be brought, he has to get arrested now. He has to post some kind of bond. He has to this surrender his passport. This is yeah, the one this I, is Because I think this is the most grievous wrongdoing. I really do. Yes. I've thought that for a long time. Right. Yeah. So it's that's the one okay, I'm and, watching. And what are we going to do about the small town Jason Aldeans who are whipped up? And they're not listening. They're hard of understanding. Jack Smith can put the indictment. Well, in he writing. can say that song was just about terrorism and flag burners, and you know, I mean, it, it's it's you know, I mean, I, I I can get behind that kind of thing. No, I don't like to see the flag burn. I don't want I don't want to see riots in the streets or people, you know, right. You know, attacking and I don't the police. like overwoke either. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in your song, you have a line about sisters and brothers, right? Right. You think that's inclusive? That's what I'm trying. What to about be. transsexual? That's sisters and brothers. They're they're somewhere in between. And the trans. <laughs> so that's overwhelming. It's, it's right? We we all are somewhere on the political spectrum. But I'm telling you, all Dean and his wife. I've read up on this. They're maggot. Okay, they filmed it at a courthouse where a black guy got lynched. It's deliberate. And when you listen to Bradley Onishi, who's my great guest. Ronald Reagan chose to announce in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where a horrible racial atrocity had happened like 16 years prior. So there's always this cry on the part of the Goldwater right, Reagan right, and now the Trump right to get those George Wallace voters, and they have. And that's a key part of the Republican Party, and it's based on racism. 
And that small town video, you think a black or a Jewish guy or a Japanese guy would feel welcome in that small town? I mean, and the beauty of America was blending us all together into a melting pot. I was, I was down with that, right? And our Christian brothers and sisters, I thought it was loving. Honestly, when I joined KNUS, or even when Catholics would always say, yeah, I want you to become, you know, I want you to believe in Jesus. I could laugh that up. I don't know if you've ever had anybody say that to you, but he'd say it on air. Yeah, it's like, good luck with that. You know, I'm secure in who I am. But honestly, uh, people who don't believe in Jesus aren't welcome, right? In that kind of America, in Jason Aldean's small town. Or if you are around, just know your place, right? Because there's a Christian America. There's no real separation of church and state. They want prayer back in school. Whose prayer? Well, we know whose prayer. It's going to be Christian. Right, but you're, but you're, you know, you're taking it out to another. I mean, he, he could easily say, "This is just, this is a song. This is a patriotic song. This is a song about my love for America." End of story. He's not talking about Christianity. He's not talking. He about, could have without that music video, which um, all focused on this George Floyd riots. Why didn't he have some January six scenes? I mean, you try that shit in a small town. Great point. That's where 140 cops got it hurt. Right, right. No, that's 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 a great. I didn't see any January 16, and boy, yeah, it just. Now that would have been that would have been a that would have been. You see, then the song would have really really gotten into something deeper. Mm-hmm. I I, I would have liked that. See, because that was that was a crime against America, too, even more so. Absolutely. We were all victims of that. And I'm kind of hard of understanding because Bradley Onishi taught me about my own history, years you and I lived through. Jimmy Carter, you know, in retrospect, he was he was obviously the most committed Christian I've seen in uh, the Oval Office. And I'd place number two in terms of piety, Joe Biden. Right. Yet these Christians reject these guys. But you they know were why? Real, yeah, there was they were real Christians. They believed it in their in their heart of hearts. I mean, I respect it. Well, I respect Carter and and Biden. But you know, their their Christianity isn't something they wear on their sleeve. It's something that they deeply feel. They're committed to all you know the best aspects of Christianity, like a guy like Carter. And their Christianity informs them just like your song represents. You got to be nice to everybody. We're right. in this together. Right. Got to mm-hmm. treat black people with decency. Yeah. You got to treat Hispanic, everybody, even Jewish people. <laughs> Think of others, right? Think of others. Be kind to others, right? That, right. That's 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 how Carter lived his life, and I think that's ba- that backs Biden pretty well too. You know what's another thing that's similar about his song and yours, Aldine and Heart of Understanding? You start off real slow on this song. Do you remember? Yeah, and then you hit a high note. I don't know, on your guitar. Just it's like a high strung song. It just sets a mood. But then you get going, you get rocking, and you get into it. I want everybody to hear the song. Anything else we need to understand about how it got created? No, I think it'll speak for itself. And how about that ice cream? Is this sitting good in your tummy? It is. Thank you for my ice cream and scotch. What about that Jason Aldean music video? I bet you'll think about it. It's the only time I'll ever watch it.
What do you do a music video? Where, don't you, know, you think I, I'm hard of understanding? Of, I'm thinking of like uh, Leonard Skinner's, you know, re, um, response to to Neil Young's Southern Man, right? And and they wrote um, um, Swing Home, Sweet Home Alabama. That was in response to a liberal guy, basically attacking the s- Southern culture, right? I never knew that. Oh yeah, and you know, sweetheart, you know, I yes, hope Mr. Young of will remember all yes. of that. It was done in great. I mean, they were, you know, I, I, I thought Leonard Skinner was very classy the way they wrote that. That you know, the way the way they you know responded, um, and uh, but again, it was about southern. It was about southern pride, um, similar to this one that that you showed me about, I guess, rural pride. Right, but yeah. that was sort of a fun rivalry, right? Yes. North South. Yeah, it felt and, better that yeah, more of yeah. like. Bantering. But I hope now Mr. Young different. will remember. They even yes. showed respect by calling him Mr. Oh. Young. Yeah, and I mean, you know, his Southern man was. I mean, it was scathing. It was a scathing song about about the South and what and the crimes that had been committed against blacks. Gosh, you taught me something again. I'm hard of understanding in my advanced age. I had no idea those two songs were connected, yeah. and I know them both. But I don't know that much about music. I'm trying to learn about politics. I'm trying to learn about modern times. Bonnie Willis is going to be acting right after Jack Smith. I predicted it all. This is going to be the summer of consequences, Dave Gunders. Well, I'll be right here. Yeah, just because we'll I give you through. ice cream and scotch whiskey. And your company. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Craig. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close 
Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, everybody, for all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156, 303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years, and I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. Hello. Hey, Bradley Onishi. This is Craig, Craig Silverman. How are you? Good. Great to talk to you, Craig. I really appreciate you doing my podcast. I know you are a pro, and uh, I just have been binging you, your podcast, your book, and I really appreciate your point of view. Well, thank you for doing that, and I, I hope you're not tired of listening to me yet, you know, so I appreciate it a lot. <laughs> no, I want my audience to hear you now. I heard you on Fast Politics with Molly Chong Fast, and you left me wanting more. I wanted to know more about your topic, but also about you. And I've started to learn about you, but um, I know you're all about Orange County, California, which just fascinates me. Uh, but you left some mysteries in your book, Preparing for War. Uh, you freaked me out. You educated me. You kind of wrote <laughs> You wrote about my own life, being born yeah. in the mid-50s when Eisenhower was in power. And you made a great point right at the outset that he was the kind of Republican the country knew up until a guy from uh, your neck of the woods took power. But let's get back to you, Bradley, before we get more in-depth. Tell everybody yourself how you grew up, where you grew up, and what you do for a living. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I grew up in Orange County, California, and I grew up in a non-religious house for the most part. And uh, my my father's Japanese American from Hawaii. My mom's white woman from Tennessee. And when I was fourteen, I got invited to a church Bible study by a girlfriend, and 
I thought, hey, this is perfect. I'll get out of the house. I'll see my girlfriend on a Wednesday. And mom won't say no because I'm asking her if I can go to church. And uh, she said yes. I went to the church uh, with no intention of paying paying any mind to whatever they were going to teach me. And uh, nonetheless, met these very charismatic young leaders who were cool and had tattoos and guitars. And uh, I converted and became uh, an evangelical Christian at a megachurch there. What year? Um, what year was that? Yeah, it was 1995. I was in eight, it was very end of my eighth grade year, and uh, you know, basically converted in a very extreme way. Uh, you know, became somebody whose whole life was consumed by the church and by religion. And um, by the time I was 20, I was a full time minister. I was married uh, to my high school sweetheart, and on my way to seminary. Uh, was in charge of a youth group of kids, a couple hundred kids at that point. Um, couldn't buy beer, but you know they put me in charge of the youth group. Um, so, uh, you know, by the time I was in my early twenties, I wait was, a second. So you're twenty, and you described it as a full time job, two hundred kids. I hope they paid you. Did they? They did. You know, not a lot. Uh, we, you know, we 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 scraped by. Uh, my my wife and I were. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it was a it was a not an easy time financially, but we did we did okay. We had a one bedroom apartment, and you know, blah blah blah, that kind of stuff. And it was it was you know, we a lot of grilled cheese for dinner, kind of kind of time. And um, you know, I know a lot of people face that, so um, it's it, it they did pay me, but it yeah, not a lot. And um, you know, kind of worked fifty hours a week at the church, and was a full time student at a Christian college, and married and just not a typical life for a 20 year old person. You know, when I look at my students now as a professor and I look at, look at them and think that they're 20, the last thing I'm thinking is that they're married and working 50 hours a week as a spiritual mentor to young people and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it was kind of an extraordinary path that I took, uh, in my youth. I feel like you were in the belly of the beast. We will get to that. How long were you, uh, a member of the clergy with this church. Yeah, I, I started volunteering at age 18. I was hired full-time at age 20, and then I stayed there for the next four years. And at age 24, uh, I was really in a, the throes of a dark night of the soul. I, I wasn't sure what kind of Christianity I believed in anymore, if at all. I was uh, reading a lot, kind of realizing that a lot of what we had learned about our faith was influenced by conservative American politics and American exceptionalism more than it was by the gospel of Jesus Christ or anything like that. And so, you know, there were days at the end where I was leading prayers in front of the entire church, which is a couple thousand people, and I wasn't wasn't confident I believed in God anymore, you know, which is a weird place to be in life. So I uh, was accepted to do a, a master's degree in theology at Oxford University in England, and that was my way out. You know, it was, a, it was a way for me to escape my hometown and the church and just kind of start fresh and figure out what I wanted to do. And so I did that in 2005 and, uh, that started me on a much different trajectory. Wow. The place you left Orange County, I've been there a time or two, been to LA more than Orange County, of course, made the ritual visit to Disneyland back in the sixties. Yes. And, you uh, do a beautiful job in your book describing that. And I want to get to your book. But before that, I want to plug your podcast because you are a pro at this as your 
demonstrating right now. Your podcast, Straight White American Jesus, it is twice a week. Am I right? Tuesdays and uh, Thursdays comes out. We actually have switched, so we're actually do we do Monday, Wednesday, Friday now. Oh, so are you doing a double dip? Have you already done your Friday yeah. show? <laughs> it's a busy day. It's do a you busy record day. it the night before? Maybe you could give me some inside info because you guys are popular. You have a co-host, Dan Miller, and you drop a hint in the book that he's got Colorado connections. Tell us about your co-host and your podcast. Yeah, the podcast is really, you know, Dan and I, who are both ex-evangelical ministers and we're now uh, scholars of religion, professors of religion. So we we really have an insider view. We've lived it. We've been inside the communities. But we now have this historical and, and sociological view. We've been studying these things as outsiders, as scholars for 15, 20 years. And so it's really our our chance to provide this kind of bifocal lens on the entire phenomenon of Christian nationalism and the religious right and everything related to religion and politics in the country. Uh, Dan is an ex-Southern Baptist who uh, uh, was was raised most of his life in rural Colorado, uh, then moved to Arkansas and uh, went to Southern Baptist Seminary, the whole thing. We met at Oxford and have been friends ever since. You know, neither of us really come from what you would think of as elite families. We didn't have parents who went to Yale or anything like that. We're, we're pretty, pretty everyday people, but, uh, you know, we, we're, we have this training that we like to share and, and our, our passion is really to help people understand things that seem really confusing. Why do conservative religious folks want to vote for Donald Trump? Why, uh, do, uh, do the campaigns against CRT or all of the hate towards the LGBTQ community? So, uh, we we unpack that on the on a weekly basis and hopefully give people a chance to understand some of it. And you help me understand, and it's in your name of the podcast, Great White American Jesus. And you pointed out something that I should have just focused on a little more. Podcasting educates me. You know, Colorado was part of Texas for a while, and I got taught the wrong Alamo story. But I've had the authors of Forget the Alamo on. Chris Tomlinson gave me a great episode. And I realized I was lied to in that whole John Wayne lie that goes through your book, too. John Wayne Airport, Orange County. I've flown in there before. So you're in the heart of it. But your approach is fantastic because I don't know that much about Jesus. And it occurs to me that my image is some picture that you write about that was put in the brains of American Christians that isn't really true and talk about it and how significant that portrayal of Jesus is to what's going on right now. You know, the, the most popular image of Christ in, in American history is, uh, is by uh, uh, Warner Solomon, and, and it comes from, from uh the 1940s, but he actually started this painting. It's called The Head of Christ in 1924. And, you know, if you look at that image, and almost everybody has seen it, it's it's a really Nordic, Northern European-looking Jesus. He's blonde. He has pale skin. He looks like he was born in Finland or Norway or somewhere like that. That has been uh, disseminated over a billion times in American history. And one of the results of that and other images is that Many Americans, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're non-religious, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Muslim, a lot of people have this image of Christ who looks like a kind of northern European 
uh, what we would call white person. And that's obviously much different than somebody who would have born, been born in first century Israel-Palestine. And uh, in terms of his, his makeup, his genetic makeup, his facial features, and so on and so forth. But it's a really important thing to consider, which is that the image of Christ is a reflection of the ideal American. And by painting Christ as this, uh, this white Northern European, many Americans accept that image as the standard image of both the divine and the human. And so we end up with a kind of normalization in this country of uh, thinking of the normal, uh, excuse me, the, the ideal human and the, and the divine as uh, a white Christ rather than something else. And I, I just think it's really important to take heed of that kind of projection because, you know, when you, when you have a white Christ, you're projecting, right? That's not a historical image. That's not an image that reflects what might have been a historical depiction. That is a projection of a certain desire of what you want Christ to look like. And for many, they want Christ to be a white man for, uh, I think, pretty obvious reasons. It's fake news. Do you know who yeah. came up with that term, fake news, in the first place before Donald Trump stole it? No. It's a guy named Craig Silverman, but not me. <laughs> not me. There's a famous, he, he has been on my show, but he's got my same name. He's a Canadian journalist. He wrote a book called Regret the Error. He'd be a good guest for you guys. And he wrote it. And quickly it got converted, and the guy who documented it all, another guest of mine, Brian Stelter, the guy who used to host Reliable Sources on CNN, who hosted me when I got fired by Salem Media. But that's another story, my own story. And my own story is that I'm a Jewish guy. And it occurs to me that some Catskill comedian had to say when he looked at that picture you're describing, like... Hey, that's funny. He doesn't look Jewish. I mean, how, who got really ripped off in this process? In the process, the Jewish people, because this guy who's a hero to everybody was probably a Jewish-looking guy like me, or more likely a Sephardic Jew. But that's okay. A Jew's a Jew, and we would have taken him gladly. But. You made this Lord of God. Maybe Paul Newman could have played him, and he's a Jew, but not that many Jews could, right? The late Adam, uh, late Adam Arkin, or that's his son, uh, uh, Alan Arkin. I don't think he could have played Jesus, but maybe Mel Brooks could have made a movie like that. But your point is so good and so serious because that's the image that uh, these Christian nationalists have of Jesus, right? It is. And, you know, I think that's why we call the show Straight White American Jesus is because there's so many people who, whether explicitly or implicitly, whether consciously or unconsciously, their image of Jesus matches their image of what they think the normal real American is. And that means a straight white American person, usually a straight white American man. And as you say, this has trickle-down effects. Um, one of them, as you say, is that Jesus is no longer Jewish. He's not identifiably Jewish. He's not. There's nothing there to represent the fact that he was a Jewish man from a Jewish family and a Jewish... I mean, I always ask my students, you know, let's talk about Jesus. And they're like, yeah, a Christian. And I'm like, nope, Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. His families were Jews. He was... His whole life, his whole understanding of the world is 100% thoroughly, completely, absolutely Jewish. And 
you know, there some of the students are kind of shocked. But anyway, the image of Christ as this, you know, guy who looks like he's from Sweden has a trickle down effect. I mean, uh, this. And this I'm, a, I'm with, hardly a scholar, but he was glad to be a Jew. He wanted some reforms, but he never talked about creating another religion, did he? He did not. No. And you know, my whenever my students and I talk about this, I say. Do not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus was a Christian. He did not understand himself in those terms. Those categories would have made no sense to him. And so, you know, once again, I think this is why having the Nordic-looking Christ uh, is something that's so normalized. We don't often think about it, but it has such powerful effects on how people think of not only the Christian Savior, but of uh, the kind of ideal person that, uh, that one wants to be. Now, what about that straight part? I, I, I'm i sure you covered it in your podcast, and I will go back. I, I want to listen to that Moms of Liberty episode, cause, and maybe we'll get to that. But well, how do you know, was Jesus straight, gay? Is there evidence? Well, here's the thing. is I think most people assume Jesus was straight, but I guess my argument would be Jesus, according to the, the, the four canonical Gospels that most Christians abide by, has no relationships romantic or amorous with any women or men. He is, uh, for the most part, you know, surrounded by men. He has these 12 disciples who he's closest to. Uh, but I guess my point is, like, the assumption is that he's straight. We don't have any ev evidence of, of that or Jesus' sexuality really in general because uh, he— oh, Wait a second. Don't evangelicals say that you need a strong father figure in the home? They do. And so, you know, this is where we start to get to something that I think is hard for them to accept. And people like me are happy to point it out to them, which is you're always talking about biblical family values. You're always talking about the nuclear family. Well, the very savior of, of this uh, religious tradition, Jesus, was not a father. He did not have a family. He was not a husband. He was, and in fact, his own family was kind of blended, was it not? Because his mother was supposedly a virgin when she gave birth to him, and yet she had a husband named Joseph who was not Jesus' dad. So it seems like Jesus might have had a stepdad. You know, all of these things are not that hard to point out, but uh, the people we're discussing here, white Christian nationalists and others, uh, they don't like to see it that way. They don't like to, to see past that because what's at stake for them is a political agenda, not uh, biblical accuracy. Right. I try not to judge. That's why I'm a lawyer, not a judge. And... <laughs> I advocate on my program against this MAGA movement. That's why your book was so impactful for me. During my radio career, I did once get to cross-examine Jimmy Carter, and I feel a little bad about it now, although he's been dying for, the what, the last eight years? Longest hospice day ever. He's already got the record for being alive the longest. But I like Jimmy Carter, not so much that I would vote for him. I caucused for Frank Church, Back in Colorado, in Colorado Springs, when I went to Colorado College back wow. in 76. That's how old I am. And my uh, incipient girlfriend, a Catholic girl named Nancy O'Malley, that was an adventure for me. Anyway, she <laughs> supported Hubert Humphrey. Okay. Wow. And, and we didn't wow. go any. Yeah, he had a last gasp even that late in his life. Uh, it didn't get far because Jimmy Carter came out of nowhere. And you wrote beautifully about Jimmy Carter, and I don't know why I haven't thought about it much more. Maybe it's because I'm Jewish 
and I try not to judge Christianity or Jesus. That's probably the most I'm ever going to talk about Jesus on my podcast because I don't know about that, but I do know about being Jewish. And I know that at first, Jimmy Carter scared me with his religiosity. Oh, my God, a born-again Christian. What does that mean? Will it be good for the Jews? And in the end, the Republicans said, you know, screw his Christianity. Will it be good for big business? Will it be good for our desire to not have to be integrated with people who don't look like us or who don't have our religion? Is he going to force all those things upon us uh, that we wanted to get rid of and we thought we were getting rid of? Anyway, I'm kind of giving away your book. You wrote about it so beautifully, (laughs) but... Jimmy Carter is a, a major dividing point in all of this, wasn't he? Well, he was. So if we go back to, to 1976, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter really does come out of nowhere to, to win the presidency. And, you know, I am not here to uh, explain why Jimmy Carter's four years as president were great or amazing. I, I, I'm not here for that. And, and, you know, I think we all know that his presidency was marked by ups and downs and and quite a lot of challenges and so on. But here for me is the point that's that's more salient. When he goes up for re-election, he's facing uh, against Ronald Reagan, of course. Now, Jimmy Carter, if you are a white conservative Christian, seems to be made in a lab uh, in terms of somebody you'd want to vote for. He's a Southern Baptist by birth. He comes from rural Georgia. His family runs a peanut farm. He marries his high school sweetheart. Uh, he joins the military and becomes a military officer. I mean, if we were building uh, a, a conservative white Christian candidate, you know, it seems like he ticks all the boxes. And yet, when it came to the vote in 1980, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, wins the approval of the religious right of the conservative evangelicals and many Catholics. And the question is why? Because Ronald Reagan is a divorced Hollywood actor. He's divorced. He comes from this place, Hollywood, that many of these conservative religious folks think of as a den of sin. He was uh, pretty in favor of abortion uh, when he was governor of California. He was part of the whole uh, revolution of no-fault divorce, which is a big, big deal. He did not have a great relationship with some of his children. So he doesn't have the family values bona fides. He doesn't have the uh, evangelical background. He's not really known as a church-going kind of uh, individual, and yet he wins their support. Why? Because they cared more about power than piety. They cared more about gaining control than they did about character. And so for them, even if Jimmy Carter shared their faith, what they wanted was the guy that would do what they what they desired when it came to the military and foreign policy, when it came to uh, a policy surrounding abortion and family, and when it came to working against the LGBTQ community. And so uh, that election, I think, is a great way to understand how so many of these folks then voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020, because the goal is power. The goal is not piety. The goal is not character, despite what they're always telling everybody else. Beautiful. I think that's perfect analysis, and the die was cast within the Republican Party, but a lot of us were living through it. I was just starting as young deputy DA. Interest rates were like 18%, so it really got, and he talked about malaise, and he wore a sweater, and he was the opposite (laughs) of the John Wayne type that Republicans had been sold, that I was sold as a little boy, all the cowboy dramas. 
And Barry Goldwater, now it's back to when I was a little kid, okay? I kind of remember that Daisy ad. I remember my parents being frightened at the prospect of Barry Goldwater being president. I couldn't quite understand why, but now I do. But it turned on the people of Arizona, the Republican Party, and especially the people where you grew up, Orange County. Talk about Barry Goldwater and what an important difference maker he was and the words he uttered in California that really define some of the bullshit we're going through right now. Well, Goldwater as a, you know, as a persona was the opposite of of Carter. Carter as you say was this sort of meek-mannered guy, you know, wore a sweater in the house to save money on heating costs and uh was not your uh cowboy mystique kind of individual. A soft-spoken and diplomatic and generous. Barry Goldwater by contrast was a, an Arizona senator with a booming baritone voice and a square jaw. He was very handsome. Uh, you know, when he was on the campaign trail, uh, he was the kind of person that felt magnetic. A lot of men supposedly wanted to be him, and a lot of women wanted to be with him. That was the idea. He was also bombastic uh, and and uncompromising. He would say things like, if he were elected president in 1964, he would use nuclear weapons uh, in in this you know in, in in South Asia. That he would not. Uh, sign any legislation reforming civil rights, uh, that he was for less government. The best kind of government is less government. These, This was his approach. Now, he was uncompromising and bombastic and a spectacle. And this flew in the face of what many people expected. They thought in 1964 that Nelson Rockefeller would be the Republican nominee. But Goldwater really came out of nowhere. And how did he do that? Well, he did that with the support of a burgeoning libertarian Christian pro-capitalist anti-communist movement that was really centered in the South, but also in the Southwest, including Southern California, where I grew up. At this t- moment in history, the mid-1960s, Southern California became the epicenter of the anti-communist movement. Uh, it was a place where the defense industry was centered. And so many of the people who moved there were Southerners and Midwesterners that wanted uh, really well-paying defense jobs. And so they moved to Southern California where there was good weather and cheap real estate, believe it or not. White white Southerners and white Midwesterners. Very much, yes, very much so. White Southerners, white Midwesterners. And uh, they create what is now known as kind of the epicenter of middle 20th century conservatism. Historians have known for a long time that Orange County became this kind of pure distilled version of a pro-capitalist, anti-communist, libertarian, entrepreneurial Christianity that was politically active. And what they wanted was not compromise or a middle way. What they wanted was their way. What they wanted was to take the country back for their vision. And this is amidst the sea change in American history. I mean, we're talking about the early to mid-1960s. Goldwater represented to them the kind of guy that would carry out that mission. And when he accepted the nomination for a GOP presidential candidate, he said that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, meaning that extremism is the mode you have to operate in if you want to take your country back, conservative people, white Christian people. You have to be extremists. 
And even though Goldwater was destroyed in this election versus Lyndon B. Johnson, he lost by a, in a landslide. The foot soldiers of his campaign never forgot that set of tactics. Don't compromise, don't negotiate, and always work as extremists who are going to overturn the power structures. And I can go on about this, but the rest in some sense is history because the people who worked in his campaign eventually were able to take over the GOP and set the stage for what we now know as the Trump years uh, and uh, a very different chapter of American history. Boy, you educated me a lot because I didn't realize Barry Goldwater's educational background. As I recall, Jimmy Carter went to the Naval Academy, and I know they didn't run against each other. Goldwater was against LBJ, but just contrasting kind of who was a more accomplished man. Uh, The Carter just celebrated their 77th anniversary. Tell everybody about Goldwater's intellectualism. Did he read a lot of books? Was he educated? You know, Goldwater, uh, he went to the University of Arizona for one year, but then he dropped out and he began to work in the family business. You know, one of the things about Goldwater that I think is really interesting, given uh, the the persona of Donald Trump, is that Goldwater came from a wealthy, affluent family, and yet he he portrayed himself as an everyman who was a cowboy. So in one sense, he's wealthy and affluent. He's a college dropout. And in another sense, he's sort of portraying himself to the public as this cowboy out on the range who's fighting for the everyman, you know, uh, uh, and his needs. Uh, his sister claims that he never read a book cover to cover. So uh, that kind of tells you about his uh, intellectual interests and uh, I know and habits. I know a president like that. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess for me, you know, some, some people listening might think, well, why are we talking about Barry Goldwater? What's the point here? And I guess for me, one of the, the points is that, A, the figure of Goldwater helps us make sense of how someone like Trump can come out of nowhere and become a nominee for president. And B, Goldwater really helps us understand the beginnings of a GOP that is taken over by what I would call you know, very right-wing libertarian types, even extremists, who have now brought to fruition a, a set of policies and a platform that are based on culture wars rather than policy, that are based on uh, you know, attacking their opponents uh, rather than implementing uh, things that will actually help the American public. Goldwater is a figure that really illuminates how this all gets set in motion. And so if anyone listening is wondering why we're going down uh, you know, history lane here, I think, or memory lane, I think, I think those reasons are worth it. Right. One thing I'd like to forget is, as a lot of people pointed out, the the first, uh, I mean, Goldwater had a Jewish heritage, right? Goldwater was a Jewish name, department store. They converted. I'm glad you didn't put that in the book, by the way. And I'm glad that it didn't have much about the Jewish people in there, because honestly, I read those books. They scare me. But you have a Japanese-American perspective that I valued, and it's kind of similar. You know what I mean? Goldwater, at the end, though, he did tell Nixon he's got to go. So Goldwater might have had some redeeming characteristics, but race relations was not one of them. And this is a brilliant point you bring out in your book. And I figured this out, being on talk radio, being a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. It was a big deal when I was a little boy, the 64 Civil Rights Act. 
Some people were for it. JFK finally came on board. LBJ pushed it through. Goldwater opposed it. So did Ronald Reagan, as you bring out in your book. And some people haven't let that go. And now it's revived again with the recent Supreme Court that really says, no, you don't need public accommodations. 303 Creative out of Colorado. And I know you've covered the case. But some Republicans have not given up up on civil rights. If we don't want black people to eat in our restaurant, we shouldn't be forced to do it by the government. Goldwater said, damn right, we're with you. That's the old South, that's Jim Crow. And we had to bust that up. But that war that we thought was over, the Civil War too, it's not over. The old South's rising again, and they're doing under the mantle of Christianity. And as you address that, just talk about Barry Goldwater. Was he a religious guy or was he like Reagan or like Trump where they just used it as a vehicle? Yeah, no, I I think Goldwater is a great way to explain how Christian nationalism works. I think when people hear that term, they wonder, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean people who are very religious and they go to church every day and that kind of thing? And I think a Christian nationalist is somebody who wants Christianity and Christian people to be privileged in the United States in some way. And Goldwater was very good at capitalizing on this. He was not uh, an overtly religious man. He was not somebody who left the the house with a Bible under his arm, like Jimmy Carter. Uh, But he was somebody who talked about God and nation and how God secures the rights of the people and these kinds of things. He was able to use a kind of myth of the American nation as founded on, uh, you know, God's plan and God's providence to capitalize on what he thought, you know, would be popular among uh, voters all over the country, but especially in the South and in the Southwest. So Goldwater really encapsulates, I think, uh, how Christian nationalism works as a myth. And he also really begins what I would take as this counter-revolution that you're mentioning, right? So you said the 1960s included a Voting Rights Act, a Civil Rights Act. It also included immigration reform. Uh, We had The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963, and Stonewall happened at the end of the 1960s. The Loving Case was decided in 1967, protecting interracial marriage all over the country. The point for me is that for most Americans, those things signal progress. For Christian nationalists, they signal the taking away of their country from the rightful owners and the rightful heirs and the giving of it to people who they think don't deserve it such as people of color and black people, uh, gay and lesbian and queer people, uh, folks who are immigrants and so so on, independent women and so on and so forth. So if you talk about the current Supreme Court, to me, these things are all linked. They see the 1960s as the time when they lost their country, and they see the 2020s as the time when they're finally going to get it back by way of the Supreme Court, by way of a second Trump presidency, by any means necessary. So what started in the 60s, they're going to overturn and finish now, is the idea. There are people even older than me in the business, and one of the guys was Peter Boyles, who's about to turn 80, and he was the, once Alan Berg got assassinated, he was the leader for decades in Denver Talk Radio, and he would have on John McManus, the president of the John Birch Society, I'm saying within the last decade, and I'm like, what the hell? (laughs) And it's, I thought the John Birch Society went away. That was the anti-Semitic racist group 
instead of using Twitter, they would have mimeograph machines. They tried to dominate the Republican Party. William F. Buckley stood up to that bullshit, and it looked like they were gone. But everything old is new again. Am I right? Tell everybody about the Birchers, their connection to your part of the world, and how they become part of Christian nationalism. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it's still a story today, as you say. So the John Birch Society starts in the late 1950s, and it's it's named after a missionary to China who was killed in China. So John Birch is, 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 uh, is somebody who's uh, seen as a kind of martyr, uh, both for Christianity and for the United States. So when Robert Welch starts the John Birch Society, he, he is basically saying what we stand for is America— American capitalism, American uh, independence and democracy. We are thoroughly anti-communist. We are thoroughly uh, 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 anti-atheism, and we are pro-Christianity. Now, on the surface, you might say, "Well, okay, I, uh, you know, maybe not my cup of tea, but I'm not scared," you know. But in reality, on the ground, the John Birch Society was a conspiracy machine. Uh, Robert Welch was a conspiracist who thought that the Illuminati. Uh, were secretly running the world. He thought that Dwight Eisenhower, uh, of all people, was a Russian uh, Soviet spy. He thought that Martin Luther King Jr. was the same thing. Even Earl Warren, the Supreme Court judge, uh, he spread rumors that the John Birch Society spread rumors that teachers that were teaching health and sexual education were taking their clothes off in, in classrooms to show students that various parts of the human anatomy and these kinds of things as you say, they were anti-Semitic. Uh, they were often uh, spreading what are uh, tropes about you know, Jewish people that uh, go back centuries and millennia. And yet, they are overwhelmingly effective at gathering people into mobilized political units in Southern California, in Orange County, especially housewives, especially suburbanites, and they're the ones that mobilized for Goldwater in 64. They're the ones that are politically active, trying to take over school boards and win elections on the ground in local uh, places, mayoral races, county supervisors. All of this should sound familiar. This is what is happening today. We still have conspiracy machines mobilizing people in the name of family values, in the name of anti-communism in the name of Christianity, and they are trying to do what? Take over the school boards, win local elections, spew conspiracies in order to scare people, and to, quote-unquote, take over the country. To me, QAnon is the grandchild of the John Birch Society, and many of the conspiracies that we find in the Q universe are very much traced back to things that we find in the John Birch Society. So, as you say... What is old is new again. The John Birch Society never really went away. It also spawned new uh, conspiracy machines, just like the KKK. Even if you think it's gone, it never really is. And we live in a world where conspiracy theorists like Robert Kennedy Jr. and others continue to spread misinformation and have large influence. I like that expression, everything old is new again. So let's drop back even 40 more years from 1964 to 1924 when you said that straight white American Jesus picture got started. Think about 100 years ago in Orange County, California, Colorado Springs, Colorado, my home city of Denver, the Klan was running everything. My grandfather was a Denver lawyer. He couldn't go down to the Denver District Court because 
Clarence Morley, the chief judge, was presiding, and that son of a bitch got elected governor. And then he served for a while, and then it spasmed out. Was it similar in Orange County? You write about it in your book, focusing out there. Tell us about the Klan and how long and how big it was in your neck of the woods. Well, the Klan was active. You know, I think a lot, I think I appreciate what you said, and because I think a lot of people assume that the KKK was a, a Southern phenomenon. But as you say, uh, you know, you're you're talking about Colorado and and just an overwhelming Klan presence. Uh, if I talk about my neck of the woods, a place like Anaheim has a deep and long history with the KKK. And so those uh, those organizations were were present there, the KKK along with the John Birch Society. And I think that there's one there's one way that we can say, hey, look, you know, Denver has changed. Orange County has changed. It's a different era. And in some sense, that is true. However, uh, Orange County throughout the 80s and 90s remained a bastion of conservative uh, political uh, power and influence. That is the region from which uh, Richard Nixon came. I My hometown is Richard Nixon's hometown. My old church is Richard Nixon's old church. And of course, Ronald Reagan was uh, was was born and raised as a political figure in Southern California. He was, some would say, most at home in Orange County. As you said earlier, John Wayne uh, had the airport named after him. So uh, I, I don't think I need to explain how Orange County is this sort of uh, just well, let me absolutely. let me ask you this because I'm curious. And he also came to Denver to build Celebrity Lanes and uh, Fantasy Fun Center. But Walt Disney, he had to be the big man in Anaheim, Orange County. What were his politics? He he supported John Wayne, right? Didn't he put him in movies? Yeah, and I you know I'll be honest. I I'm not somebody who's who's done deep dives on on Disney. What I what I what I think is important about. Um, uh, about the region is that we have Disney who has a lot of influence, but I will say this, there's another theme park in Orange County and it's called Knott's Berry Farm. And, and if you're from California, you've probably heard of Knott's Berry Farm and Knott's Berry Farm these days is a, is a sort of regional amusement park. It's a big thing. A lot of kids growing up where I grew up would prefer to go to Knott's Berry Farm than Disneyland. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because the Knott family started Knott's Berry Farm as a berry farm. It was a farm where they had berries and other products. And Mr. Knott, Walter Knott, was one of the biggest supporters of the anti-communist movement in Orange County, of people like Reagan and Goldwater and John Wayne and others. So, uh, you know, Disney's one story, but there are major players behind the scenes in Orange County who are f- who are fueling and funding a lot of the movement I'm talking about, uh, and so that's there. I, I just want to say one more thing: is that Orange County these days is looks different from from what it used to. Uh, you know, it voted for Hillary Clinton in, in 2016, went for Biden in 2020. You have a lot more people of color in Orange County these days, and yet the 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 school district that I attended, the, the place I went K through 12, has been taken over completely by MAGA extremists um, and is in a place now where local universities will no longer send student teachers to do training in the district because the curriculum is so uh, is, is, is so myopic and so um, out of line with California standards. So it's one thing to say Cal- uh, Orange County's changed. On the other hand, there's, there are signs that not much has changed uh, in, in the 60 years since uh, since Reagan made his, or Reagan was raised and born uh, as a political figure there, and 
and uh, and since I grew up there. Sounds like the school district in Woodland Park, which is right above Colorado Springs, which is maybe competitive with uh, Orange County. I oh, mean, yeah. Colorado, if we're not first, maybe we're second, because you know who the big benefactor was? Ronald Reagan, I think the Coors family Coors out family. of Colorado, the Coors right? Yep. And uh, focus on the family, James Dobson, who started out in your neck of the woods or, or ended up there getting a degree at Southern Cal, getting in trouble. He ended up in Colorado Springs right toward the end of my college career. So we can compete, and I'll get to some more Colorado characters, but really we can't because you have Mel Gibson out there in uh, Southern <laughs> California, and we've been, you you didn't really focus on Mel Gibson, but you sure did on his movie Braveheart. I don't think I've ever watched it, but tell everybody how Braveheart figures in Christian nationalism. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing. And and if you read the book Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobes Dumay, she she does a great job talking about this. But uh, you know what I can say is Mel Gibson has made a lot of these movies about underdog patriots who fight for their country to the death, right? So he made this this film Braveheart. He also made the film Patriot. And of course, people listening will know about his movies, uh, you know, uh, about Jesus and so on. The film Braveheart, however, has a special place in white Christian nationalist imagination because Braveheart is about a, a Scottish uh, warrior who really fights to get the English out of Scotland uh, in the you know the the Middle Ages, uh, he's somebody who is never expected to win, and is willing to fight for his country, for his love, and for his people. And what Christian nationalists do is they take uh, Braveheart, this brutal figure who's overwhelmingly violent, and they say this is the sign of a real man. If you want to know how to model masculinity. It is the figure of Braveheart in Mel Gibson's movie. And I will tell you that when I was a teenager, you know, a practicing evangelical, we did not watch films that included uh, depictions of sexuality. You know, we were the kind of people that thought if if you see sex on the screen, that's sinful, that's bad. We're not going to watch that and we're not going to support that. But I did watch Braveheart probably a hundred times in high school. And Braveheart is an overwhelmingly violent movie. It includes like very brutal depictions of people losing limbs in their lives and so on and so forth. And I think what that tells us is that the ideal man for the evangelical, for the white Christian nationalist, is not Jimmy Carter, the guy with the Bible under his arm who's teaching Sunday school. Uh, it is not Barack Obama who wears uh, jeans and crosses his legs when he sits and drinks a latte. Supposedly to them, this is the sign of not a real man. The real man is somebody who will uh, be bloody, will brutalize enemies, and will put people online when they need to be, even if that means physical force. Braveheart is the model of white Christian nationalist masculinity, and I think it helps you understand why Donald Trump was such a hit with these people. It's because he promised to brutalize their enemies. He promised to punish the people they thought needed to be punished to make America great again. These folks were not convinced in 2016 that Mike Huckabee or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio would be up to that challenge. They were convinced that Donald Trump would do that dirty work for them, just like Braveheart. And so they voted for him in 2016 and they voted for him in 2020. I've studied up on Mel Gibson because I consider him an enemy 
of my people. He stated it when he got arrested. He doesn't like Jewish people. I don't like him back. And he's part of that Opus Dei wing yep. of the Catholic Church. My goodness, the Catholic Church does so much in the way of good. Social justice, some causes they stood for um, were beautiful. But they had to make a choice. And another Colorado character, I don't know if you followed him, Charles Chaput, and then he went on to be the Archbishop in Philadelphia. He was conservative as heck. And even though they're not supposed to support the far right, he took it to another level, just like Mel Gibson and a lot of Catholics. A lot of Catholics have stayed with the Democratic Party, but a lot have left, and a lot of them are voting for Trump and other bad people. Is that the Mel Gibson wing, and how big is it? Well, I, I guess what I would say is that if you if we read the history and I try to show some of this in the book, you know, there have been uh, for a long time a kind of coalition between white Catholics and white evangelicals and even some Mormons, you know, Latter-day Saints. And the white Catholics and the white evangelicals really bonded, unfortunately, uh, in in the middle 20th century over issues like abortion and their opposition to it over issues like. LGBTQ rights and representation over, you know, women entering the workforce and the Equal Rights Amendment. And so they bonded over these issues and they built a coalition. And that is why, you know, for me, it's not surprising to see that you have a majority of white Catholics who voted for Trump, because there's a way that uh, this has been happening for 50 or 60 years. And the politics drives their uh, their understanding of what's right more than, as you say, some of the social teachings of the Catholic Church and its emphasis on uh, on justice. So this doesn't surprise me. I think that Mel Gibson is one figure, and there are many, many others who are Catholic that are uh, part of the MAGA movement and supporting things that we would uh, associate with white Christian nationalism. So whenever I have a chance, I always say that white Christian nationalism is not limited to evangelicals in Colorado Springs. It is more expansive than that and includes, unfortunately, a large swath of Catholics uh, in the type or the the, the kind of uh, genre of, of someone like Mel Gibson. Right. I used to give people the benefit of the doubt. Abortion is a tough issue. I debated it on the radio. I had a partner show with a staunch Catholic who's got his wet dream now because I can't believe it, Roe v. Wade is gone. And he advocated for all these things as a Catholic. And I was thinking that it was in good faith. I always wondered, well, if you really regard this as a Holocaust, as you were taught, as you recount in your book, then what are you going to do to stop it? I guess we found out they'll do anything, right? January 6th, destroy democracy, etc. But maybe that's just their good faith belief that they're stopping a Holocaust. But then I read your book and you were inside that movement. And you say, no, Craig, it's really not about abortion. It's about racism. Well, and I, I think it's important to, yeah, to get the history uh, kind of in order here. So, I, you know, a lot of people will say, well, uh, you know, white evangelicals, they have not always been a, a kind of political force in, in American politics in the 20th century. But when it came to abortion, they couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. They had to get involved and they started voting and they joined up with their Catholic siblings. And they, here they are. They're often voting. Make, we're going to stop abortion. What I try to make clear in the book, and I follow other scholars like Randall Balmer in this, is that 
1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision is really important for understanding uh, white evangelical politics in the in the middle 20th century. White evangelicals in the South and other places did not want their kids going to school with black children. And they did everything possible to make sure that didn't happen. They started schools at churches, private schools, so that they didn't have to send their kids to public schools that were then integrated. Now, this led to the IRS and the government threatening to take away the tax exempt status of those churches and schools because, in essence, they were segregationists. They were whites only schools and whites only churches. When that happened, many white evangelicals started to claim victimization. The government is persecuting religious people, the government is trying to take away uh, parents' rights to choose what school their children attend, and so on and so forth. This was a catalyst. This is what got people like Jerry Falwell and others ready to fight uh, in the political realm. And so my argument is that when we think of evangelicals getting into politics, it was not started by abortion. It was started by a desire to keep schools segregated. Now, eventually, they landed on abortion as another issue that was really useful for mobilizing people. And I think this is really what we see today. What you see today are a lot of folks who are told this, abortion is murder. If you support abortion in any way, you're supporting murder. And if somebody tries to bring on bring in nuance to the conversation, if they try to talk about fetal development or unviable pregnancies or anything of the sort that uses science uh, to uh, discuss reproductive rights, they are taught to close their ears and say, abortion is murder. Life begins at conception, end of story period. I don't want to hear anything else. That is a really effective political position, unfortunately, because it means a lot of people will vote on the basis of abortion or to oppose abortion, even if that means ignoring all the other sanctimonious and insidious aspects of a candidate's uh, platform or persona. This is really, really powerful in motivating people, and it shows you that the very simple and uh, reductive logic at the heart of much of the, the, the evangelical movement, abortion is murder. If you support abortion, you support murder. Which side are you on? You decide. It's, 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 <laughs> but it's, it's, a, but it's a good faith. Yeah. I've never been pro-life. I've always been pro-choice. And, you know, Colorado had legalized abortion before Roe v. Wade. So I grew up in that environment. And that happened in the 60s under... Dick Lamb, who was a legislator at the time, went on to be a three-term governor. But you were against abortion. Are you still? And can you say, you know what? It's a tough issue. And if people believe that way, I guess I can understand why they want to stick with Trump because he gave them the end of Roe v. Wade. Well, no. I So I am thoroughly, thoroughly pro-choice and, and pro-reproductive rights. Uh, and I have been since I left the evangelical movement in 2000. And, and five, whether or not it's a good faith belief is one thing. I think for me, what's more important is this. What we have, unfortunately, in this country are people who are willing to accept binary logic when it comes to one of the most important issues facing uh, our public square. We have a situation where instead of being willing to think critically about the issue, to see the complexities of the issue, to see the various health risks involved when, when women have unviable pregnancies or an ectopic pregnancy or anything else, to see the social issues at, at play when it comes to 
uh, children and their overall health when it comes to education and nutrition, when it comes to their uh, opportunities in the American public square. Instead of attending to any of that nuance, what we have are people who will teach you this over and over and over. Abortion is murder. Make a choice. It's that simple. And guess what? Those people over there, it's not that they have a different position than us. It's that they are working for Satan because they hate children. Do you want to be like them? No? Okay, then stay with us, the people that want to save children and who love God. That kind of logic is so reductive that there's no good faith in that logic because there's no faith in it. There's no uncertainty. There's no willingness to see complexity. There's just one or the other you choose. And to me, that is insidious. And it's really, really deleterious to our democracy's health. You are a fascinating thinker. But again, I just go back to your... When I I listen to your book, you narrated it beautifully. But when you said really abortion arguments are a cover for racism, that caught my attention. And another argument, uh, I mean, if you want to go back on that, I mean, mean, do you think that's harsh? Am I I overstating that? I think think the way to think about it today is this, that there are a lot of people who are taught that abortion is murder from the day they're born. I mean, you know, there, there are, and you know this, in Colorado, there are, there are six-year-old kids whose parents take them to protest at the, uh, you know, the, the Planned Parenthood Parenthood or anywhere else. Right. But what I'm, what I try to show in the book is that in the 1970s, when Roe v. Wade is, is decided, something like 90% of Texas Texas Baptists are for abortion in some form. The leader of the Southern Baptist Seminary is for abortion in some form. In the 1970s, when Roe v. Wade's decided, abortion is not an evangelical issue. It is not an issue that takes people to the polls and has them voting uh, on a single thing. It was very much a Catholic issue, but it was not an evangelical issue. What I want to show people is that abortion was then used and offered and transformed into this singular political decisive issue down the road as a way to mobilize people. What I'm getting at here is when I was 15 in church and people taught me that abortion is murder, I thought they were teaching me a timeless Christian truth that came from God and the Bible. What they were really teaching me was a modern Republican invention used to get me to vote in a certain way as a religious person. That is why I say abortion is a, is a, is a, is a kind of tool deployed by political operatives. And before abortion was even something evangelicals cared about, what took them to the polls and got them to vote and organize was race, racism, segregation, and desegregation. I love it. For about a decade, um, during the time that you were probably going to school, I hosted an afternoon show with Dan Kaplis, a conservative Catholic who still buys his own radio show and does it that way. But there's Peter Boyle's character I've already referenced. He had morning drive. And if Donald Trump is number one for Obama birtherism, Peter Boyle's might be number two. He's definitely in the top 10 because he pounded it every day with Roger Stone, Jerome Corsi. And when Donald Trump came down uh, as a presidential candidate spewing birtherism, 
he went orgasmic, and he got on board a political candidate. The only charm, if there was, of Peter Boyles is that he avoided all politicians. He didn't like anybody except Tom Tancredo and Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan of Nixon fame, right. And, And then he sees Donald Trump, and he gets in bed with him. Now, when KNUS, the, the station ended up getting sued over the big lie, he had to worry because individual hosts were getting sued out here. And he's smart enough to realize the big lie was a big lie. He also was never a proclaimed Christian, even though he was on his Salem station and still is doing Saturday morning radio at age 80. Anyway, I'm fascinated by this guy and birtherism. Gosh, it was on my radio station, and maybe I should have said, that's terrible, but I would listen, because it was kind of fascinating. And you have to admit, there were parts of Barack Obama's upbringing that was mysterious. Now, whether he was born in Kenya or not, it's undeniable his mother was an American citizen, so he was a natural-born citizen. So it was like, what's the point of all this other than to run him down, right, as illegitimate? Well, I mean, I think the evidence, I, I, I see no reason to think that Barack Obama was born anywhere but the United States. But I, but so that for me, the real question is, well, why, why birtherism? Why, why Barack Obama? I mean, if you want to talk about where people were born and their history, we, we, we could talk about the Romneys and Mexico, but nobody seems to care right. about that, including me. The real point of birtherism is this. If we see somebody like Barack Obama, who is... If Jimmy Carter's made in a lab for the white Christian to supposedly vote for, Barack Obama is made in the lab to, to scare the hell out of the white conservative and the white conservative Christian. Uh, his father is from another country. He is mixed race. He has a black wife. He has black children. He, his name is Barack. His middle name is Hussein. He's raised, at least for part of his life, in Hawaii, a place that you know many folks uh don't consider or don't realize as part of the uh, union. And he sort of represents everything that the white conservative Christian thinks is not really part of America. He's mixed race. He has a black family. How could this man be the head of us? If we are the American body, how could he be the executive function? How could he be the face of this American body? So birtherism is a way to completely delegitimize Barack Obama as a person to say, in fact, even though you are an American, everything about you is foreign to us. So over and over and over again, we're going to say, you are not from here. You don't belong here. You were not born here. You're not really an American. That was the, that was the, the, to me, the essence of birtherism. And it was all about resentment. How could a black man of mixed race origin with a black wife and a name like Hussein become the leader of my country? A minute ago, I said that the 1960s were the time when people really thought they had lost their country, that Goldwater and others said, be extremists, the civil rights movement, the Voting Rights Act, the immigration reform that brought in so many folks from from places like Asia and other parts of the, the world. You lost your country. You've lost your country to these interlopers, to these immigrants, to these independent women, to these mixed race people. And Barack Obama is the emblem of that. And so when the birtherism is is growing and, and gaining steam, it's really just them saying, 
you're not really America, and we're never going to accept that you are, and we're never going to accept that you have any legitimate right to claim to be our commander-in-chief and our president. And thus, birtherism leads to what? The birther-in-chief, Donald Trump. Afraid so. And I love your perspective because you have the other. You, Your father was Japanese-American, as you've already described, yet in your book you say you can pass as white, you're a handsome guy, and I can see that. But you have the perspective of, I'm not one of you. And believe me, as a Jewish person, we understand. It's a Christian world uh, in America, but it's been the greatest place probably in history for Jews to live. And I'm afraid that it's going away. And you have your beautiful special perspective. Speak about being a non-traditionally white Christian person in America with Donald Trump. God forbid if he gets in charge again. Well, when I converted, I realized that, um, the, you know, the church was 90% white. And I realized that they had no problem with people of color there or, you know, those who were not white. It was, it was only this, what they had a problem with is if you were a person of color, meaning <laughs> they wanted you there, but they didn't want your culture there. They didn't want your language there. They didn't want your garb. They didn't want your customs or your stories, right? If we had a a potluck after church, you know, we were going to have turkey sandwiches. There was no way they wanted me bringing like kimchi, you know, or, uh, or octopus to the, uh, to the table, like I would in my Japanese American family. And so I realized, very can I ask with octopus, are there eight servings? No, there are not. I mean, it, you know, it just depends, but you okay. know, I just wondered yeah. about that. Not that I'm ever going to eat octopus. I'm not a bigot or anything. It just frightens me. The prospect. Anything yeah, with know, eight legs, I'm not going to eat. Fair enough. And but you know, you can understand that Right, just like you probably wouldn't eat gefilte fish, or maybe you would. Well, but I think the message for me is right that if you show up to the potluck they don't want any gefilte fish there. Exactly. Right. It's it's weird, it's other, it smells different. What is this? Right? Do we really want this here? And that's the point for me is that it's totally on their on their radar that they want you to come if you're a black person or a brown person or an Asian person. Uh, they want you to come if you're a Jewish person. Come on over. But when you're here, you need to realize that not only are we Christians, but that the way we do life is going to reflect a certain uh, a certain set of mores. That we are not going to have a quinceanera for the the Mexican teenager in our congregation. We are not going to have you know certain kinds of foods or songs or festivities uh, as part of this place. So if you want to be that kind of person of color, you either need to do that somewhere else or just decide you don't need that as part of who you are anymore. And that's what I learned in my time in the church. Uh, So what does that mean now? What that means now is that we live in a terrifying time. I mean, you know, we live in a, a time of rise. I don't have to tell you this rising anti-Semitic sentiment and violence against Jewish communities and people. We live in a time of soaring uh, violence and, you know, bias against Asian and Asian American people, not to mention trans and LGBTQ folks and so on. And so uh, the idea of Trump and his second presidency, I think, is absolutely terrifying to uh, anybody who is paying attention and realizes the effects it will have for those who are black, indigenous, people of color, who are religious minorities, who are sexual gender minorities. It's its not going to be uh, fun for, for any of those folks. 
And what are we going to do? You write so beautifully about the American redoubt, how people are separating themselves, like the migration from Orange County, Colorado Springs. It's experiencing the same thing. Do you know they just elected a non-Republican mayor, an independent for the first time? Orange County is experiencing some changes, school board trails it, et cetera. But a lot of people are moving to Texas or Florida or Montana or Idaho. Um, Wyoming, right above us, Wyoming here in Colorado. We're kind of surrounded. Um, what's happening to the United States? Are we united anymore? Well, I, I think there's a couple comments. I think one is I don't think that we have taken stock as a country of what COVID did to American migration patterns. Uh, I think what we're going to realize in, in a couple of years, and the researchers will show us this once they have all the data and figure it all out, but what we're going to realize is that COVID changed the ways that people identify with uh, their regions and the places they live. And so, you know, I try to show in the book everything you just said, that there are large-scale migration patterns. There are people who are leaving places like Sacramento or places like Denver or places like Seattle and deciding that moving to Idaho or Florida is more in line with their values, more in line with their understanding of the world, more in line with their faith. Uh, so what I see there is a, a sense of self-segregation. They're saying, I want to, you know, when it comes to a place like Idaho, uh, I grew up in Orange County. I probably, if I went to Boise right now, could find a hundred people that I have known from church or school. That's how many people have moved there. And when you ask them about that, they're saying, look, this is a place where I can own as many guns as I want. Uh, there's no COVID, you know, measures making my kid wear a mask or get a vaccine. Uh, you know, abortion, there's restricted and on down the line in terms of all the things they want, right? So what we're seeing is this kind of self-segregation of people who who are moving, you know, in, in various ways. And we're seeing the opposite effect where those folks who are uh, gay, lesbian, and especially trans are moving out of places like Florida, Texas. We're also seeing a lot of brain drain from places like Idaho and Florida because of the ways that uh, different laws are affecting the university systems and higher education and the ways that doctors are being attacked at hospitals. So those migration patterns are uh, are happening, and I think we're not fully taking stock of what they mean yet. Now, people ask me a lot, are we going to have another civil war? And my answer is this. If you look for it as North versus South, then I think no. But if you look at it, the little fires all around us now in terms of the ways that people are willing to uh, disarm a, a power grid so that you can't have a uh, drag queen story at the library. You know, they just take out the power grid so there's no power. Um, and that happened in North Carolina. You look at the ways that people were carrying AR-15s out uh, while sitting next to voter drop boxes in Arizona. Last summer, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Patriot Front, about 30 members attempted a massacre at a pride event and they were stopped seconds before it happened. We can look all around us and see the little fires everywhere. We can see the signs that people are willing to use violence. People are willing to use vigilantism. People are willing to use extra lawful measures in order to put in place the social order that they think one should have in the United States. And so uh, I, I am not trying to be alarmist, but I am one who's willing to say I lived this movement. I know why these folks thought January 6th was a good idea. 
and they don't think it's over. They are preparing for war now and looking at January 6th as one of the first conflicts in what they think of as a new American war. Guys, you have a beautiful chapter toward the end. We probably won't get to it because I have a more important question, kind of personal. But you write about January 6th and the consequences. And as a lawyer hoping for America to be saved, I'm looking uh, to Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis, Alvin Bragg, and for my world, the rule of law to save the day. Maybe it can, maybe it won't. You have such a beautiful chapter about the religious, Christian nationalist underpinnings of January 6th. It's just so obvious, but I miss some obvious stuff sometime because after I did the better part of a decade on uh, Denver Afternoon Drive Radio, I was offered a chance to do work for Salem Media. And I researched it and I thought, one, I like listening to their shows. I thought Hugh Hewitt was a moderate Republican. He wrote a book about Mitt Romney extolling his virtues. Dennis Prager to me was an intellectual Rush Limbaugh, not as bombastic, uh, had kind of a mild point of view. Both of them based in Southern California, your neck of the woods. So I signed on with uh, 710 KNUS where Peter Boyles was, who was an outspoken atheist. And I thought, okay, even though their mission, and they stated up front, Salem comes into a market, they get uh, a pure Christian music station, they get a Christian talk station, and they, then they get a conservative talk station, which I was a part of. And my feeling was, hmm, why are they doing it? Well, they believe in Jesus. They want more people to like Jesus for all the right reasons. They love Israel. My boss there said, gosh, we love Israel. I love Israel too. So I thought, what's the harm? And now he had said Trump time. Trump came along and I can see the harm. You probably, you didn't write about Salem media, but you know, a lot of those characters come from your neck of the wood, and the involvement of AM radio is pretty profound, isn't it? What do you have to say about all this, Bradley, as I lay on the couch and, and, and try to justify what I did, why I did it? And in the end, it, it was a harsh landing made, you know, top of the dredge report. I didn't plan it that way, but to me, it's kind of, it, there was some Christian, non-Christian stuff going on there. After reading your book, I think I understand it better. Please help me, Bradley. Well, <laughs> I don't know how much help I can be, but I will say that I understand your reasoning and it it, it makes sense. Um, but I, I would also say that uh, one person who has taught me a lot about the Salem Network is Ann Nelson and her work, the Shadow the Shadow Network. And you know what I've learned from Ann and from others is that. You know, Salem is this sprawling network of of media channels and, and radio and, and AM radio especially. And one of the things that I think Salem really capitalizes on is when it comes to rural America in particular, they're able to really saturate the market such that they're one of the few stations you can get. You know, so if you're you know, what Ann always talks about is if you're driving to work in Oklahoma, where she's from it's really hard to not listen to Salem and it's really hard not to listen to in the Trump years, as you talked about people who are saying things like Hillary Clinton is a demon or Hillary Clinton has serpent DNA and things like that. Well, if you hear that on the radio and then you hear that at church, it's going to start to sound like it's just true and everybody knows it. Right. And then maybe somebody told you that 
at work because they read a book or a pamphlet or something else. Um, so to me, Salem represents a kind of uh, evangelical media empire that goes back 80 years. And, you know, for a long time, conservative Christians have had their kind of own uh, autonomous, self-enclosed media networks and empires. Salem has has really branched out. And as you kind of articulated so well, and, you know, you lived, uh, it's trying to show itself as a as a network that appeals more broadly than just to that conservative Christian audience. But I think at its heart, it really does have uh, the kind of foundations of MAGA and, and Trump and everything else going for it. So, you know, you know, I, I understand why you got in, but uh, I also understand why the landing was so hard and why it was such an abrupt kind of awakening. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry that that happened, but um, it, it makes sense to me with everything I know about Salem as, as a kind of media network in this world. What about those two Southern California characters, Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager? Uh, do you well, know about them? Yeah, yeah. So the one that I, I, for me, it's Prager's just really stands out because I think what me Prager too. is able what to, a seller. I mean, Prager, God, I'd like to have another word with him and kind of say, "What the hell, man? What the hell?" Because Prager is Jewish, yes, and and so you know, not Christian, and yet Prager really represents. I think you know, when people ask about Christian nationalism, they often just imagine Jerry Falwell or some mega church in Dallas or something. Prager's a great example of this. He's Jewish, and yet, you know, all of his understanding of America is really based on this idea of order and God and a certain, you know, uh, a certain sense of of what is right and what's not. And Prager's the kind of person who I would call a Christian nationalist, even though he's Jewish, because his worldview is so based on that story of the United States. What Prager did, and it's genius, even though it's menacing and insidious, is he turned four and five and eight minute media clips into these weapons of political mobilization, right? He, what he realized is, is look, if I give you a six minute video that seems really intellectual and really smart, and I seem like I'm really coming off as a kind of college professor, but what I'm actually offering is this reductive reasoning that like totally bowls over the actual historical nuance and the actual philosophical details. And I just present something that's a right-wing talking point. I can have an overwhelming influence on people that say, yeah, look, I learned this from a really smart guy who uh, is a real intellectual and taught me a lot. Of At a I university. It's called exactly. Prager University. But, but, but at the same time, when Google shut it down, then I could see Prager get his fur up, and then it becomes, well, now the left's suppressing me, I hate them, and it just becomes a hating contest. I'm trying to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Should I at all? I, I don't have any sympathy for, for Prager, and I don't have any... I, I think Prager, as you said, uh, you know, more intellectual Rush Limbaugh, but somebody whose who's politics... Uh, are no different really to me than Limbaugh's. It's just dressed up as a kind of faux intellectualism. It's, 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 it's similar to what Jordan Peterson is doing uh, right now. It's a dressed up faux intellectualism that says, no, of course I'm not just the, 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 the jock of the, the radio jockey of hate like Rush Limbaugh. I'm, I'm an intellectual. I'm from a university. I'm smart. I've done the research. Right. 
And yet, you know, he sh- where did he show up recently? Moms for Liberty in Philadelphia. Right. And he talked all defending, about how- Defending their Hitler quote. Exactly. Exactly. So there is, for me, we are long past the benefit of the doubt stage. I agree. With, with, That's with why Prager. I was thinking about putting hands on him. Not assaultive, but we have met. Gosh, I was at, at the White House on Salem Day at the White House, late July 2017. We don't have time for that, but I do have two kids, age 24 and 22, boys, and I feel like they're being targeted by various podcasts, not you. I'd like them to listen to yours, but Cretans like Joe Rogan, and why do I call Joe Rogan a Cretan? Because he gives the time of day to Alex Jones. Alex Jones is my touchstone. You don't put down victims of violent crime. You don't do it to Paul Pelosi. You don't do it to little kids slaughtered in their elementary school. Put them through torture. Alex Jones, you are dead to me. Anybody who gives you the time of day is a scummy guy unless they confront you and confront you hard. Hell, I interviewed O.J. Simpson, but I confronted him. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, am I right? You're a podcast pro. Isn't Alex Jones sort of a touchstone? Anybody who touches him get away. And that includes you, Donald Trump. You went on his show with your pal, Roger Stone. No, I agree 100%. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't understand what benefit comes from platforming Alex Jones unless, as you say, your goal is to confront, to expose, and to not allow him to spread his lies unchecked. And I think, as you say, someone like Joe Rogan, you know, this may sound strange to people, but I think Joe Rogan is in the same genre as as Prager and as Jordan Peterson in the sense that despite Joe Rogan being this kind of, you know, bodybuilder guy and this tough masculine dude or whatever he thinks he is, Joe Rogan is is really portraying himself as like wise and smart. He's a sage. You know, he's not just a a bodybuilder. He's a sage. He's offering the wisdom that we need right now outside of the common authorities. And yeah, he's a risk taker. And you know what? He'll have Alex Jones on to talk to him because he's not like the mainstream media. He's not going to be censored or canceled. And so come on out. Come on out here, Alex Jones. And let me let me have on any other number of COVID deniers and conspiracy theorists. Why not? That's a problem. And to me, it, it represents, you know, a, an issue when he's the most popular podcaster on the, on the nation or in the world. Um, it shows us the kinds of misinformation that are being spread uh, through the mainstream. Yeah, what do we do about it? There are two smart guys who host a podcast called Knowledge Matters, where they make fun of Alex Jones every week. And to an extent, I kind of monitor Denver Trump radio is what I call it. Maybe I'm going to have to change it to Denver Christian Trump radio, if you don't mind, as a hashtag. I won't start a podcast or anything, but what do we do? I mean, what's your raison d'etre now? I mean... You guys are a top-rated podcast, but I doubt you're getting super rich on this. What motivates you? Uh, what What is the best thing that people like you and me can do about this crisis that appears looming? Well, yeah, you're right. We're not getting super rich, but the reason we do it is because uh, we feel like this is worth doing. We feel like that this kind of work, uh, educational work, uh, explanatory work, analytical work is worth doing because it helps people understand so many of the forces that play in our political lives and our cultural lives. And in response, here's my challenge to everybody is it is an overwhelming moment. We live in a moment where crisis upon crisis upon crisis is stacked. Climate crisis, pandemic, 
income inequality, so many other issues, reproductive rights, systemic racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Asian hate. I can go on and on and on with all of the issues facing uh, this country and the globe. It's easy to get depressed, to simply scroll through all the bad news and wonder, what the hell are we going to do? My challenge to everybody is this. What is one thing you can do? Is there one thing you care about? Because what we need is for people to activate. Is there an issue where you can donate your time, your resources, your money? Is it reproductive rights? Is it election integrity? Is it campaigning for a certain candidate locally? And I'm talking about local. I'm talking about school board candidates, mayoral candidates, county supervisor candidates. Are there ways that you can get involved there? Because you know what I'll tell you does not feel good scrolling the internet and getting full of despair at all the bad news. And it just, it just uh, cascades upon you. You know what feels really good? Being alongside others, fighting for something that is going to help the world, working hand in hand, side by side, and seeing if you can't change something. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the next 20 years holds. But I know that the way for us to actually try is to get out there and organize, be together, and just pick one issue, one issue, and go say, I'm going to find a way to be involved. I'm going to find a way to give back. I'm going to find a way to say, this is, this is me standing up and saying, I want to contribute. And if we do that, that's the way to do it. And we see the effects of that. We see that we have gay governors in the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest. We see that we have black mayors in, in cities that were once uh, making it very hard for black people to vote. We have the first Asian American woman in Boston as a mayor. We have Kansas rejecting draconian, awful reproductive rights measures. We have so many places where we see the effects of this kind of work. So we can't be just despair dummies. We have to be willing to say, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to do my best, and it's going to feel really good working alongside others who care about it, just like I do. Well, you do more than one thing. You do your podcast. You wrote this amazing book, and I agree with you. We all have our role, and fate has kind of assigned it. You have wisdom about evangelical people because you're part of it. You are a clergyman. You understand it. You're a scholar. I, through my experience, understand about the courts and the rule of law, what it's like to be a prosecutor, a Jew, and a member of the media where I was sort of in the belly of the beast with Salem, as you so beautifully described. And I tried to impact people with my Colorado Sun column, where I'm columnist at large. But your book is magnificent because I lived through everything you talked about, but you made me think about it in new ways and I just think it's a great book. How can people buy it? What's the best way? Well, thank you so much for that. I, I'm really grateful for, for that. Uh, yeah, you can find all the info anywhere you buy books. It's called Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Uh, my website is bradonishi.com. And you can find all the info for our, our podcast at straightwhiteamericanjesus.com. And we do that three times a week. So uh, those are the best places. I'm on Twitter a lot if you're there. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to connect with some people. I will throw down all those links on my show notes. Tell me about podcasting. Where do you push people? I like Apple. I'm audio only, which gives me a lot of freedom. I don't need to comb my hair. You have beautiful <laughs> hair, by the way. But you know what I mean? Where do you push people? Where do you like people to give five-star reviews and subscribe? 
Well, subscribing uh, on Apple is really helpful and, and the reviews on Apple are really, really a big deal. So if you can do that, that'd be great. We get a lot of trolls, a lot of people that want to give one stars and say that, you know, we're, we're uh, whatever we are. I'm not going to repeat the names they use. Um, but yeah, Spotify is great as well. So, and there's any number of independent places. So anywhere you get podcasts, look for it. We're just grateful you're listening and, and you're uh, giving, giving us some of your precious time. Well, I'm going to subscribe. I'm giving five stars to this interview. Thank you very much, Bradley. Let's stay in touch, okay? Thanks so much, Craig. I, I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, what a show. Bradley Onishi is a fantastic speaker, scholar, and an important person to pay attention to. Dave Gunders, thank you as always. I think Heart of Understanding a music video. It could be the perfect rejoinder to MAGA World and Jason Aldean. Try that in a small town. We'll try this again next week. Episode 158 was a doozy. Tell your friends, share, subscribe, five stars on Apple. Why? Because I own Apple stock, don't you? Thank you. Enjoy. Have a great week. Bye. 
Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.